0: Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening, and thank you for being with us here again on ADH. You're now one of hundreds of thousands of viewers here, and I must say, around the world who watches every week. If you like watching, but you prefer to listen, the full show is available each day, that's after the show, so Tuesday to Friday at 6am on your fa- favorite podcast platform, six to o'clock every morning. You can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Podcasts, and more of them. Simply search Alan Jones and click the picture of me and there I am, voice and all, content is king. Well, today the media is saturated with the case of Chris Dawson and the guilty verdict delivered yesterday by Mr Justice Harrison. The defence case was that Lynn Dawson left the home and made a call to her husband Chris that she wanted time away, or words to that effect. In other words, she walked out on the marriage and her children and she was never seen again. The case has had endless publicity worldwide. The judge took approximately five hours to deliver his verdict with the chilling words directing his glance straight at Chris Dawson, and I quote, on the charge that on or about 8 January, 1982 at Bayview or elsewhere in the state of New South Wales, you did murder Lynette Dawson, I find you guilty. It will be necessary for you to be taken into custody, unquote. This will have occupied discussion in pubs around Australia, but to the layman, the story is simple. Here's a 33-year-old mother and wife gone, never to be seen again. She's a mother of two young children. Would she just walk out on two young girls? The defence argued she made a call to her husband that she wanted time away, but there was no record of her ringing anyone else. If a young woman is sufficiently stressed to walk out on her husband and children, if that happened, it defies common sense to believe that she wouldn't ring anyone other than the husband, not a mother, not a brother, not her friends to tell her sad story. So admittedly, there is no body and there are no witnesses, but on the accumulation of circumstantial evidence, Mr Justice Harrison said to Chris Dawson, you did murder Lynette Dawson, I find you guilty. To the layman, it just seems straightforward. But as I said, there are no winners in any of this. For my viewers in Sydney, the nightmare continues with industrial disputes crippling the train network and people opting to work from home. Strikes like this have a massive financial impact on business, which is trying to make a quid in the face of worker shortages, inflation, supply chain issues and the continuing impact of coronavirus. Someone has to draw a line under this dispute for the sake of the economy and commuters. Today, there was widespread industrial action across the rail network Getting to the radio station here was a nightmare. I mean, key routes or key bus routes. It was a strike on key bus routes. Train services were slashed by 75%. 1,100 bus drivers on strike, on routes covering the city's south, inner-western parts of the CBD. And apart from describing the industrial action as devastating, the government seems to have no answers. Sydney cannot be a world-class city if it can't provide reliable transport. Like most of this nonsense, the poor commuter hardly knows what it's about. Well, let me try to explain. The government spent $2.3 billion on a fleet brand new intercity trains to run to places like Newcastle and Lithgow. But the union, the Rail Tram and Bus Union, RTBU, refuses to operate them because the brand new design doesn't allow guards to adequately monitor safety. Now look, There are trains all over the world that operate without guards. So this new fleet, $2.3 billion, is in storage. The guards have been told they won't be unemployed. The government has now spent hundreds of millions of dollars retrofitting guard compartments into what the government regards, not just the government, but is a reality, perfectly safe trains. So that's done. But the union now wants money, a pay rise of half a percent more than the state government's wages cap. Now, everyone knows inflation is outstripping wage growth and you can mount a legitimate debate about wage increases, but without dislocating a whole city. The New South Wales government has already caved in by retrofitting guard compartments on these trains when in the future train guards will be obsolete. The union might have had a case and its leader, Alex Clarsons, has always been a fairly reasonable bloke. The reasonable thing to do now is to get his members back to work. If there's an argument over pay, it's possible to resolve that argument without creating havoc right across the city. We're talking about pay. Tonight, we'll try to make some sense of this summit that starts in Canberra tomorrow. And we'll go to London for the latest over there. The acrimonious contest between Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss for the prime ministership has damaged the Conservative Party. David Maddox has the inside running on all of that. And I'll have something to say in a moment about the death of a remarkable figure on the political stage of the 20th century, the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. You're watching ADH. It all happens here, the last bastion of common sense, and we're not woke. I'm Alan Jones. Well, as I said just a couple of minutes ago, today we learn that the eighth and final leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, has died at the age of 91. He was the son of peasants, but the world came to know him as the architect of perestroika and glasnost, two words which mean restructuring and openness. Domestic policies that he hoped would dismantle the machinery of repression that his predecessors had methodically erected. I have no doubt Gorbachev would be alarmed at the reintroduction of repression and unbridled authoritarianism exercised today by Vladimir Putin. Because Gorbachev forged disarmament treaties with Cold War enemies, he freed political prisoners. He ushered in the unfamiliar notion of free elections. He cracked open the door to states in Eastern Europe to eventually break free of Moscow's rule. In truth, Gorbachev lifted the Iron Curtain and pulled Russian troops out of foreign conflicts, such as the 10-year debacle in Afghanistan. He said in 1988, and I quote, the winds of the Cold War are being replaced by the winds of hope. Gorbachev will be regarded as one of the most influential politicians of the 20th century, the last leader of the Soviet Union. He died on Tuesday at the age of 91. He had been suffering from acute diabetes and was undergoing treatment in a hospital in Moscow. Gorbachev unravelled decades-old, entrenched communist regimes across the Eastern Bloc. We saw the reunification of Germany's East and West. He greatly improved ties with America. Putin, of course, is heading in the opposite direction. But in his two-volume book called Life and Reforms, published in 1995, Gorbachev wrote, and I quote, I do not relieve myself of responsibility, For the initiated reforms, because I'm still deeply convinced that they were vital and ultimately will serve the well being of my motherland and will be beneficial for the world. It is hard to reconcile these views with the behaviour in 2022 of Vladimir Putin. Mr. Gorbachev rejected the use of force to crush the push for freedom in the Soviet bloc. He eased censorship in the media and in cultural life. He initiated a landmark nuclear arms control agreement with America and was awarded the 1990 Nobel Peace Prize. The Nobel Committee cited, and I quote, his leading role in the peace process, which it said, quote, characterised important parts of the international community. The Wall Street Journal today cites the Moscow-based political scientist Mark Ernoff, who worked at Mr Gorbachev's foundation. Mark Urnhoff said, quote, The real problem is Gorbachev was trying to introduce freedom to a society and a population that did not know how to use freedom. For many generations, we were under a very tough totalitarian regime. We were deprived of any elementary personal freedom. To overcome such kind of a legacy, three or four generations are needed, unquote. We've seen, as you know, the reaction to Donald Trump in America. Once he threatened to drain the swamp, the hierarchy went after him. And so it was with Gorbachev. Thousands had benefited from the system of privilege and cronyism, and those very people sought to reverse Gorbachev's policies. As Ann Simmons rightly chronicles today, some key cabinet ministers and close associates launched a coup against Mr Gorbachev in August, 1991, while he was on vacation with his family. The coup failed, but weakened his position. As Mark Ernoff says today, quote, "'The coup affected him very much, psychologically and psychosomatically. There was deep trauma," unquote. Well, Gorbachev resigned as leader of communist Russia on December 25, 1991. The next day, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, USSR, was formally dissolved. Subsequently and presciently, Gorbachev explained the necessity for his reforms. And this resonates with where the world is today. Said Gorbachev, and I quote, "'The reason was already visible. Society was suffocating in the grip of a command bureaucratic system. All attempts at partial reform, and there were many, failed one after another. The country was losing perspective. It was impossible to live like that. Gorbachev was born on March 2, 1931, to a peasant family of mixed Russian and Ukrainian heritage. His maternal grandparents were Ukrainian. During Joseph Stalin's great purge of the 1930s, in which perceived enemies of the state were detained and sometimes killed, both of Mr Gorbachev's grandfathers were arrested and spent time in gulag labor camps. Gorbachev would later acknowledge the experience had a profound impact on him. His policy of glasnost offered citizens greater liberties, including allowing them to say what they wanted without fear of retribution. Not so today in Russia. He encouraged differing views and greater candor in the conduct of government affairs. Not so today. He released political prisoners and allowed publication of once classified information about the crimes of the Stalin era. Gorbachev was indeed a towering figure in the history of world politics. As Ann Simmons writes today in the Wall Street Journal, and I quote, Mr. Gorbachev reviled conflict. He didn't intervene to quell popular uprisings that eventually led to the toppling of communist regimes in the Eastern Bloc, including in Germany and in Yugoslavia and he allowed those Soviet satellite nations to eventually gain their full sovereignty, unquote. Disturbingly, as the Wall Street Journal reports today, Gorbachev watched as many of the democratic reforms that he had ushered in eroded under the reign of President Vladimir Putin that started in 2000, including the demise of competitive elections and the clampdown on press freedoms. The warming relations Mr Gorbachev forged with the West fell into a deep freeze under Putin with the dismantling of the Gorbachev-Reagan Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, a treaty which banned the two nations' conventional ground-launched ballistic and cruise missiles with ranges of 300 miles to 3,400 miles. Well, that was banned. As Carol Williams writes splendidly today, when the Soviet flag was lowered at the Kremlin at the end of 1991 and the Russian flag went up, the man who had freed the continent from totalitarianism quietly accepted his fate as a politician who had served his purpose. The eighth and final leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev has died in a Moscow hospital at the age of 91. Well, okay, as everybody knows, there is a jobs and skills summit taking place in Canberra tomorrow, at a time when worker shortages are at a critical level. That is hard to believe, I must say, when there are 892,000 Australians receiving job seeker and youth allowance payments. The interesting point about this is that fewer than 10% of private sector workers belong to a trade union, but 25% of those attending tomorrow will be union representatives. business, 15% academics, are they the people who pontificate in theory rather than in practice? 12% of those attending will represent lobby groups. Well, Innes Willocks has been a journalist, a political staffer and a diplomat, eminently well suited to be the chief executive of the Australian Industry Group for the last 10 years. So he represents businesses in a broad range of sectors, manufacturing, construction, transport and labour hire. I must say his only weakness is, he was born in the port city of Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland, 93 miles from Edinburgh, but we love our Scottish friends. So Ennis joins us tonight. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Don't hold
1: it against me, please, please.
0: <laughs> um, what do you think all this is going to achieve and all those businesses with massive staff shortages are wondering when they're likely to gain relief and how? What are your thoughts?
1: Well, Alan, tomorrow and part of Friday are an attempt to get different parts of the economy together to at least start conversations around some of those issues that you referred to. The number one issue that business talk about is labour shortages just can't get staff. So how do we get more people into the country? We might get some agreements around getting migration going, particularly skilled migration to fill some of the gaps in the short term, but also some longer term needs that we have. We'll have some conversations around the big skills gaps we have but and, and a range of other issues, workplace relations and the like. But this is another marker or another step in a long conversation uh, around some of these issues that have been a long time coming. Mm. You now We genuinely hope we can get some agreement on some of these issues, but some issues might be a bridge too far and some will need to be taken away for further discussion. So... It's a step on the road. It's not going to answer all the problems we have, uh, but it's better to be, to be talking than not, I yeah, guess. I
0: guess. Innes, the reason I have concerns about this is that I don't get any indication from government that things have changed since all this extravagant rhetoric about, for example, net zero took root. Now, the world faces affordable energy shortages. You know this. Critical fuel shortages, trade bans, food shortages, economic downturns. Europe has, well, they've seen the consequences of this overly hastily withdrawal from fossil fuels and nuclear energy, the inability of renewable energy to provide reliable power. Yet here we are a world leader in natural resources and we're facing high petrol prices, rocketing inflation, coal fired power stations aging and failing because they've been demonized and there's no incentive to invest in new heli coal fired power plants. There's a likelihood of electricity brownouts and industry shutdowns. How much time will be given to these issues in the next two days because they all affect jobs and productivity?
1: Oh, they sure do, Alan. They're crucial. You don't have a job if you don't have power. Uh, And all of industry relies on reliable, affordable power. It's becoming harder. We've seen gas prices triple uh, in recent times. You mentioned Europe. You know, they're going through hell at the moment. Yeah. A lot of Australian businesses are about to be catapulted into a period of paying enormous amounts more for their energy. Households the same, leading to inflation. You see estimates of the UK, Britain, you know, where I was born, inflation at 22% estimates of that. I mean, that's unsustainable. So you need power, uh, you need energy. Um, a lot of the conversation over the next two days in the the agenda that the government has framed is around clean energy and the transition to clean energy. So it's looking further down the track. We're going to be bringing up and raising the issue as we do every day around reliable, affordable power being a complete foundation on which our economy yes. has to sit. Yes. And if we don't have that, then we're, we are in a world of pain Yes, indeed. and a lot of industry will have to shut down and close. So the answer to your question in short is tomorrow is a bit, but But not enough.
0: No. I don't think Chris Bowen understands any of this. I mean, this is ideologically driven and the consequences and costs are not being spelled out. See, people listening to you and me now are facing petrol prices come September... Uh, going up by the end of September, 28, I think it is, by 22 cents a litre. I've got people writing to me and is telling me they've received notices from their electricity supplier that the cost of power to their home will increase by 23 percent. That's from tomorrow. So where do they fit into this so-called summit? Because if it's about jobs and employment, I speak each Thursday here to Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. They've done a splendid analysis of the economic and the employment consequences of net zero emissions. And they're telling us that Australia, if we're going to, which the Greens and the Teals want, cancel coal and gas and oil, will forego almost 500,000 jobs in regional Queensland and New South Wales. Now, if this summit is about jobs, how is that reality being addressed?
1: Well, Alan, Yeah, a lot of the conversation over the next couple of days is not going to be around that. I'll be upfront about that. It's not going to be around that. It's going to be around other issues. But the fact is, you're right. Without that energy power guarantee, we're not going to have jobs. And this is about, you know, what the government is wanting to do over the next couple of days is try to put together an agenda uh, for the next three years, essentially, but there, ha- there is not much conversation around where we are now when it comes to power and energy the no. conversation is around sort of down the track yeah. you know what do we look like in 2030 and 40 and we do have big issues now yeah. i think you know uh, one of my staff very eloquently put it today in an interview that we are uh, a lot of businesses about to roll into hell yes. uh, when it yes. comes to energy yeah. and power prices yes but you see, got you got a big way business. Of it and we need We need to focus on it.
0: I know. Big business are going to be there tomorrow. They've got into bed on this net zero emissions stuff and don't seem to be asking any questions. I mean, the ANZ Bank chairman, Paul O'Sullivan, whom you know and I barely know, says climate change is a significant business opportunity. (laughs) Hello? What the hell does he mean? I mean, is there a political agenda here that the Prime Minister and the Treasurer want to make sure this is not written off as a pointless and costly stunt. So what will it have to achieve
1: to prevent that conclusion? It's a really good question, Alan. There's obviously a lot of uh, scepticism around what will be achieved. And I think it's right for people to be sceptical around what what it will achieve. But we do have hopes that it does have outcomes around agreements that we need to reskill Australia for the jobs of now and the future that we need to grow the country to fill the huge skills and labour gaps that we have now. That's the that's the important thing. Now, what policy outcomes come out of this in the end is really going to be up to the government. They're going to hear a lot of voices uh, over the next two days. They have to make some conclusions. They are the government. They make the decisions and they ne- they will be and need to be and should be held to account Absolutely, on the decisions yeah. they See, make. See, for
0: example... You only... the, the AC... They The the ACT and the unions, I'm not opposed to unions, but they're demanding wage increases unrelated to productivity. Now, surely tomorrow, the first word that should come out is that productivity must come first. You can only pay for wages out of profit. Do you think that's going to have productivity will
1: have the profile it deserves? I hope so. The Prime minister's used the productivity word and it was terrific to hear him say it, but it's got to be front and centre of all the conversations, because without productivity, you won't get those sustainable and sustained wage increases that unions want, everyone wants. It'll just be pie in the sky stuff that will put people out of work when they push too hard. So, you know, the unions, ACTU have come up with a proposal around Uh, Starting up what they call multi-party bargaining. That's different businesses, agreements for different businesses. As far as we know, it doesn't matter. It hasn't been thought through around what their size is, what their industry is, what their geography is, what their aspirations are, what their current situation is. At the moment, it looks like the unions are pushing to impose wage increases on those businesses. And we've made it very clear to government too that what the unions want is to be allowed to pursue industrial action, like mm. the Sydney train dispute yeah. today, in pursuit of those ends. So imagine if there's a if there's a wage dispute over a childcare centre that the entire entire childcare sector could be yeah. uh, brought to its knees over a dispute right. in one centre or or a gr- lack yep. of an agreement in yep. one centre. Yeah. We've said that is a complete and utter unnegotiable red line for yes. business. We will See, uh, not tolerate that. And, and now you and we'll can't. I mean, that. See, the, the
0: Prime After. Minister has said that Australians have conflict fatigue. That's correct. He wants from the summit, quote, a new culture of cooperation. He wants to expand, his words, the common interest. But he's going to abolish the Australian Building and Construction Commission. Now, this is an area that's very close to your heart, your members. This doesn't add up. I mean, you would know the construction industry is on its knees for a variety of reasons, shortage of skills, materials, inflated costs and so on, and big construction outfits have gone to the wall. But under the ABCC, you at least had guaranteed payment for the subbies within 30 days. Now, where does this fit into jobs and productivity?
1: Well it doesn't and we have opposed the abolition of the ABCC from day one and we've been strong supporters of it because it is an industry which needs strong regulation and strong oversight. You see what happens on building sites, you hear it all the time from constructors around union behaviour, around pickets, around nonsensical stoppages over safety and other issues that quite frankly they make up. And if there isn't a regulator, you're going to have a union, the CFMMEU, the construction part of it, the most militant union in the country, running rampant. That's going to be shocking for that construction industry. It's going to be shocking for costs. It's going to be shocking for the rest of the economy who will have those costs flow on. So, you know, the government may say that they'll put forward legislation to abolish the ABCC. We will oppose it. We hope all the crossbenchers oppose it. It's crucial that they do it without a regulator. We're just going to have a union run rampant, and that's not a great outcome when you're looking for a more productive Australia. I say to you every time we talk that we could talk
0: forever. I just want to ask you one thing before we go, because there's all this talk about enterprise bargaining. Um, Tony Burke has said there are rorts in enterprise bargaining and so on. Just leave that for now, because we've now got this push, it seems to me, for this 1970s approach for sector-wide pay claims. They call it pattern bargaining. But to the viewer out there, this basically means that the worker in Mount Isa with a totally different cost of living structure would get the same pay, must get the same pay as the worker with a high cost of living in Western Sydney. How do you address this
1: issue about pattern bargaining? Well, we have are fundamentally opposed to the concept because it, what the whole reason Australia, or one of the big reasons Australia has done so well for the past 30 years, Alan, is the focus has been on individual businesses definitely, and yep. individual businesses working out with their workforces, Absolutely. pay in conditions that suit that business, that the business can afford. And what we are really concerned about is that under this proposal, businesses will be uh, told to, uh, enforced to make pay payments that they can't afford, That's it. don't suit them don't fit in with their business plans, don't fit in with anything to do with their business. There's no detail around what's being proposed here except that what is being proposed is a throwback to the 1970s at a time which led to massive inflation yeah. and a recession and yeah. that's the last thing that we need and we will oppose it in the form that the unions have put forward mm. very, very strongly. Mm. I can assure you of that, it's a complete throwback Mm. Next, they'll be wanting us to wear bell bottom trousers and have long mm. hair like the Beatles. That's where they're at. That's yes, where agree. they want to take the industrial There relations are
0: difficult system. times ahead, and I'm not too sure that tomorrow and the day after we'll resolve much of this. We'll wait to see what happens. If need be, we'll get you back next week to talk about the consequences of what came out of the summit. But thank you for your advocacy. It's very, very critical indeed. Uh, just for our viewers, productivity is everything. I mean, you can only pay for jobs out of profit. The unions mm. should be on the side of the employer. They would want the, should want the employer to do well because that means you can employ more people. But somehow or other, that philosophy doesn't seem to have a lot of currency amongst some people in the government. Innes Willocks, very grateful for your time. Many thanks for being with us. Thanks, Alan. You take care. Here he is, Innes Willocks, the head of one of the biggest employer outfits in Australia, the Australian Industry Group. Well, you just heard from Innes Willocks. It is hard to escape the conclusion that what the nation needs are not summits and talk fests, but decisions. Put brutally and simply, people are going broke. I read recently of a third generation farmer on the central coast of New South Wales, and there are thousands across Australia. In his predicament, labour shortages. He can't find people to pick the oranges and lemons and limes for his juice company. It's all done by hand. So with a lack of staff, the crop falls to the ground. The farmer rightly said, and this is happening everywhere, and I quote, People come in for interviews, we offer them the job and they don't show up the next day. Tell me about it, It happens here. It doesn't matter what industry, agriculture, horticulture, hospitality, it's diabolical. You and I see this every day in cafes, pubs, restaurants across Australia, crying out for staff. Only two ways out of this. First, reduce the hours of the business or second, shut the business. The point is, as I said to Innes, there are 892,000 Australians, receiving job seeker and Youth Allowance payments, and businesses can't employ people. You can have a summit every day of the week, but the new government has to understand that the voter progressively is seeing that while government is big and bloated, where it's wanted, it's useless. That's why 66% of voters didn't vote for the Labor Party, and it was much the same for the Coalition, big, bloated, bureaucratic, and useless. Tomorrow, there'll still be a massive shortage of workers and there'll be nothing different next week. You see, the problems that the government won't address are everywhere. Rick has written to me and he said this quote, I'm a beef producer in central Victoria. I've been following Zali Stegall recently and I've attempted to ask her what I believe are serious questions, but as yet I've had no response. In our region, we are inundated with wind farms and now a new 500 acre solar farm is to be built. The turbines are located atop many hills in our region, spoiling what was once pristine views and mountain profiles. My question, he said to Zali Stegall, was, why are there no turbines or no commitment to build turbines in her waterfront electorate? Unquote. (laughs) We showed you that picture before, see? He says, there's been a mock-up picture of Manly Beach, that's it, lined with turbines along the coastline. He said, I know most laugh at this, how can anyone dream of doing that? Ask Rick, why? Why is it okay to put these monstrosities in my backyard, but not hers? What is the difference, Rick says? Why is her environment more valuable than mine? He said, I'm tired of these inner city planet savers crying for renewables, but getting shocked when it's suggested that they build some in their electorates. He said, I've got swimming friends around Brighton and Mentone beaches in Victoria who are absolutely gobsmacked when well, I suggest wind farms in Port Phillip Bay or along the coastline, unquote. Well, can anyone in government answer Rick's simple question? Why is their environment more valuable than his? Which leads me to another viewer, Jane. She says, I'm feeling increasingly lost in the quagmire of political correctness, lost and stressed with all the technology but none of the wisdom in our education system. She said, the horse has already bolted. Those in charge of the education system have achieved almost complete control of the freedom of speech of students. Students lack a teacher for classes and are told to sit and shut up on their devices," And then she says, there's the public library. It was the height of learning once in a democracy, but now no more. It now houses the latest books on NADOC week or days of activism and critical race theory. And that's the great reset that I'm talking about. Through education, we're changing society's values. Michael wrote to say that in the mid-70s, he saw a documentary showing how we were heading into a new ice age and how we're all going to freeze. Time and Newsweek had articles dealing with the same topic. I might raise one of these next week to prove it to you. He said, yet within 10 or 15 years, we had a 180 degree, degree reversal and now we're all going to die in a global hothouse. We were told the world would be one or two degrees warmer, asks Michael. Really? That's what's going to fry us all? He said, if I'm at the beach and the temperature's 36 instead of 34, am I really going to notice? When global warming could not be consistently and convincingly relied on, he says, the subject became climate change. And anyone with two synapses, that's the neurons in the brain, anyone with two synapses to rub together swallowed the lie. As Michael rightly says, there are as many climate models as there are gender identities these days. Well, the point is this, whether it's people picking fruit or working in the cafe, whether it's what you don't know about your children being brainwashed in the classroom, whether it's wind turbines in the farmer's backyard, but never in the backyard of the Teals, in all of these things, the problems are created by government, but never solved by government, which leads me to the conclusion I offered earlier. Government has never been bigger, more bloated, more bureaucratic, more expensive, and yet, unfortunately, more useless. And all of that will be seen tomorrow in Canberra. Well, he's back from a well-earned break. Plenty on in Britain. David Maddox, the political editor of Express Online joins us. There is, I've told you this before, no person in Britain closer to what is going on in the Conservative Party than David Maddox. And he writes splendidly. You can read him at express.co.uk. But you don't have to read him. He's here with me right now. David, thank you for your time. Again, all the talk is about the leadership. Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak have so attacked one another that the Conservative Party has been damaged. In that contest, Truss is in front and bids to be Prime Minister to win the week. Where does this move stand by the Bring Back Boris campaigners? Are they going to gain the required number of signatures to force the Conservative Party to change its rules?
2: Uh, I think it's too late for them. Um, they're, they've, uh, uh, they're, they're piling in signatures this week as we speak. They, uh, they thought they had the number and they didn't. Um, I, uh, you know, we're getting a result, an official result on Monday to this contest, which is, oh boy, has it dragged on. I mean, like the entire summer, literally the whole country's been falling apart with the energy crisis and everything else. And so the Conservatives have been having this ridiculous contest. So, but um, no, I don't see. Uh, I don't see them succeeding. But I think the long-term effect of what has happened will see enormous changes in the Conservative Party, yes. and will take yes. away power from the just, just,
0: just for our viewers, ten thousand signatures are required by the Constitution. Party officials, as I understand it, have validated eight thousand seven hundred. But David and his team mm. at Express Online say that there are 1,775 more signatures which have been submitted by the Bring Back Boris people. Now, David, if they are validated as current party members, then the 10,000 threshold would have been crossed and the Conservative Party would have to initiate a rule change, wouldn't they?
2: They would, they would. Uh, the question is whether they'll dra- uh, drag their feet in validating these signatures. And, of course, if, uh, if if a new leader is announced on Monday, then it's too late. But that doesn't mean we end for Boris at all. In fact, one of my colleagues uh, interviewed him yesterday. Uh, two of my colleagues actually interviewed him yesterday. And uh, he's certainly not ruling out coming back. So I, I wonder if the long-term game here, or even the medium-term game here, is for him to maybe come back in a year or two if things go wrong with uh, Liz Truss, who we expect to be yes. the new leader on and new Prime Minister on Monday.
0: But just how strong is the move, though, that the party should refuse to accept Boris Johnson's resignation as party leader?
2: Uh, it, within the party, it's very strong. And, you know, we spoke about this before I left. It's, there's a lot of anger about this uh, amongst Conservative Party members. You know, we're only talking uh, a few years ago, three years ago, less than three years ago, he won the biggest majority for the party, uh, the biggest mandate since Margaret Thatcher in 1987. You know, he won an 80-seat majority. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's got the big decisions right. Nobody argues about that. It's all the stuff on the periphery, all the marginal stuff like this party gate stuff and things like that. And, uh, uh, And, you know, the MPs have gone ahead and basically... Uh, forced him out, uh, as I did with uh, Theresa May, and as I would have done with David Cameron if he hadn't jumped first. And members are fed up with it. You know, right. they, they don't think, they don't think the prime minister is a personal plaything. The position of prime minister is a personal plaything of uh, Conservative MPs. They're saying, actually, this is our leader. We elected him
0: we should be asked
2: first. Yes, uh, just back to this
0: campaign for our viewers' benefit. It's been organised by the Conservative Post and Claire Bullivant is the editor of the Conservative Post. Mm-hmm. And she says, if we get 10,000 current members validated by Conservative headquarters this week, as per the constitution, the members should be allowed a separate vote on whether they want Boris to remain leader and not accept his resignation. This can also help make sure and this is David's point, a small group of MPs cannot oust their leader against the will of the members in the future. David, she has a point when she says, doesn't she, that the coup is undemocratic. And now, of course, the polls show this so-called debate between Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak have been very damaging to the Conservative Party. Mm. So what's going to happen between now and next Monday, September 5th, when the result of trust, the Sunak will be known, and they say it's lose
2: trust. So uh, uh, Claire is right. Claire Bullivant is right. But what will happen is that the Conservative Party officials will not validate signatures in time. I can guarantee that mm. uh, because that's the way they do it. They want to make sure this contest is over and Boris is out of the door uh, because uh, a lot of them now have. Uh, a lot to lose if he, if yes. he somehow survives, yes. and a lot of MPs have a lot to lose if he somehow yeah. survives. So there's a there's a bit of an imperative on that. But actually, you you you're talking about damaging to a Conservative party. And this this incredible fight between Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor, and the current Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, they've been going at each other hammer and tongue yep. for the entire summer, and uh, and it really they've been. Taking a conservative record apart, the Labour Party have just been sitting back, having a laugh, yes. and uh, because uh, they've been doing their job for yeah. them. I mean, but basically, actually, I think basically one of, change, board, one of the change, one of the change. Board. If you want
0: to do this, one debate's enough. People are not stupid; they can make yeah. up their minds. One debate's all you need. Where does Lord Crutis fit in? He's the wealthy donor who's given the Tories more than mm. three million pounds. He said the way in which Boris had been quote constructively dismissed unquote was quote unquote corrupt mm. and quote unquote wrong. And that if, quote, if nothing changes, Mm. if Boris goes and the party's constitution remains the same, I am not interested. He said it's not a personal thing. It's just the wrong way to run a business. It's the wrong way to run a political party. So he has a point, and you've just made that, but to amplify it, if 54 MPs can trigger a vote of confidence that requires a simple majority to remove a sitting prime minister, you've got a group of MPs dictating what they believe is best for the country.
2: Yeah, and and it's worse than that as well because these MPs were changing the rules as they went along. They failed the first time and Boris left because uh, essentially they were going to change the rules and uh, which you know, the the rule had said that you could only have a vote of confidence once a year and they said, well uh, we're not happy with the first result so we're going to change the rules and uh, just force him out anyway. And, And this is what's really piled on the anger. Lord Curtis is very significant. I mean, not a lot of people have probably heard of him um, before all this, but, you know, he, he's one of the big donors to the Conservative Party, Where are others, and um, they're, they're unhappy as well. And a lot of them are thinking about whether they'll put their money forward. Mm. I mean, there's mm. no doubt yeah. that Boris's leader attracted more financial support That's it. than other leaders That's would. Right. And, 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 you know, it's going to be tough for them.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's saying there's too much power vested in the 1922 committee of backbench MPs, but then he alluded to rumours in the vote of vote lending and vote rigging. What do you know about that?
2: Well, we are really getting into murky murky territory there and uh, it's... uh, uh it's it, it's hard to say. I mean he's made various accusations which uh I wouldn't necessarily want to say I can stand up, right. frankly. But I mean yeah, but, but there is a there is a suggestion there is a suggestion that uh behind the scenes there was uh, attempts to stitch up this contest and and all sorts I don't think it's gonna work that way because mm. most of our Boris allies mm. are um going to get a person with Liz Truss, Well, well,
0: just on that then, so if Truss should win, will this involve further division Mm. because of those who will be in the Cabinet and those who will be ditched?
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Liz Truss is going to be leader, but behind the scenes, (laughs) behind her, sitting behind her, is going to be people like Boris Johnson, Michael Gove. uh, I'm not sure if... uh, Your your viewers are well, but he's a a real Machiavellian character in the Conservative Party. He's uh, He's very able. uh, Again, has been behind political assassinations before. Mm. Uh, In fact, a breaking story this morning is that uh, there's a suggestion he may leave Parliament, which I think would be an enormous relief to Liz Truss, even though... Mm. Should probably have lose a by-election. Yes, but, but it's geez. the loss of a great
0: talent. of mean, Gove. Gove. I know he's a bit of a Machiavellian yeah. type, but my God, he's a brilliant mm. mind, a magnificent speaker, he is. He and is. very, very highly credentialed. Mm. What's going to happen to experienced people mm. like Sir John Redwood, Ian Duncan Smith, Jacob Rees-Mogg? Are they going to get a Guernsey? Well,
2: it's it's possible. They certainly talk about it. I mean, the um the, the right wing of the party want. John Redwood as the Chancellor, and and frankly, there's no better qualified person to take the job. He'd be brilliant at it. Uh, His problem is his public persona. Um, Ian Duncan-Smith, the former leader, again, there was some talk that he would be Deputy Prime Minister in the administration. That seems to be quietening down a little bit. uh, There was a lot of talk about that when I went on holiday and I came back and then other names (coughs) seem to have popped up into the... Into the well, public. the rumour,
0: the, the yes. rumour mill says Kwasi Kwa Teng, the 47-year-old Secretary yeah. of State for Business. He's a Harvard and Cambridge graduate, mm. born in London, but the parents mm. emigrated from Ghana as students in the 1960s. Mm. The mother's a barrister, the father's an economist. He's Truss's preferred choice as Chancellor.
2: Yes. and Now, uh, originally it was Therese Coffey who is in charge of working pensions at the moment and is very close friend of Truss but she seems to be heading for the chief whip's office, which will be literally next door to uh, the prime minister in Downing Street. So, uh, and Kwasi Kwarteng again has been a supporter and a close friend of hers for some time, and uh, we, we will see. I mean, but the, the thing about Kwasi Kwarteng is that he's not won a lot of fans as business secretary. No, no. And and one of the criticisms uh, is is. But he's a he's a great guy to take out for lunch. And I can tell you this on personal experience. He's a great guy to take, but he, knows he doesn't them all, want to talk bloke. about his he brief. Knows he wants them wants all. To talk, he wants to talk about his history books. You know, he writes history books. And it's, uh, they're very good history books. I'd, I'd recommend picking up a copy. But, you know, it, it's, uh, he's, 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 if he's going to be Chancellor, he's going to have to focus on, uh, on the job in
0: hand. All right. <laughs> OK, great to talk to you. I t- so, our viewers, I'll tell this bloke. This bloke knows them all. He's seen them all. He's listened to them <laughs> all and heard them all. And uh, the other name to watch is Suella Braverman. She's the 42-year-old QC, currently Attorney General. She ran for the leadership. Her parents are of Indian origin, two young kids, mm. and then James Cleverly, the Secretary of State for Education, to be the Foreign Minister. We'll wait and see. Look forward to talking to you next week, mm. David, when more will be known. Thank you for your time tonight.
2: Thanks, Alan.
0: There he is, David Maddox. Interesting, isn't it? He's there, <laughs> he had lunch with them yesterday. One of his staff members interviewed Boris. They've got the lot tied up, I have to tell you. Very good stuff, David Maddox. Last night, we spoke to the outstanding Australian natural scientist, Professor Ian Plymer. I'm sure it won't surprise you that so desperate are these climate change net zero apologists that they've dragged out Tim Flannery, sorry, Professor Tim Flannery, to bolster the case for net zero emissions. He calls himself Professor and he calls himself an internationally acclaimed scientist, explorer and conservationist. Is this the same Flannery who in 2005 warned that global warming was drying out Sydney? Drying out Sydney. And he said, quote, we've just seen drought, 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 and particularly regions like Sydney and the Warragamba catchment, Unquote. You don't need to tell you what has happened this year. He further said, Professor Flannery, quote, There are only two years' water supply at Warragamba Dam. And if the computer models are right, then drought conditions will become permanent in eastern Australia, unquote. You dunce. By 2007, the alarmism had risen to apocalyptic levels. Global warming, he said, was drying up the rain and baking the soil, quote, so even the rain that falls isn't actually going to fill our dams and our river systems, unquote. So governments swallowed this and built woefully expensive desalination plants, made him the Australian of the Year. The desalination plants are now mothballed because the rains did come and parts of Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria have been flooded, dams in Brisbane, Sydney and Canberra overflowing. But now Flannery has stuck his head up again. Vaclav Klaus is a Czech economist and politician who was the second president of the Czech Republic for 10 years. He has quite rightly said, and I quote, I don't believe in the innocence of global warming alarmists. They don't care about the environment. They just misuse it in their crusade, which aims at limiting our freedom and prosperity. He said, I don't want to make comparisons of their ideology with communism, but I do see many similarities. Then President Klaus said, it is a new variant for the activist political left and I spent all my life fighting such a political thinking because I lived in such a political system. Well, you might remember under Julia Gillard's prime ministership, she declined an invitation to meet with President Klaus. No wonder. But back to Flannery. He's now calling upon the Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek to reconsider 19 fossil fuel projects assessed by the previous government, including the Narrabri Underground Coal Mine and Woodside's North West Shelf extension. And the arrogance of Flannery, when he says science is on their side, that's on the side of the Environment Council of Central Queensland, which wants Tanya Plibersek to reconsider these projects because Flannery says that we must get to net zero emissions as fast as possible and that, quote, the minister must heed the advice of the country's leading scientists, unquote. What's that mean? Well, a 100 scientists and academics have called for emissions from new coal and gas projects to be considered in the approvals process. Heed the science, they're saying. And they support this legal move by the Environment Council of Central Queensland for further environmental assessments of new gas and coal projects, and, quote, Every tonne of greenhouse gas emissions and every fraction of a degree of warming is a blow to the health of our ecosystems and economy and any coal or gas project will dangerously worsen climate change, unquote. Well, Flannery is one of the letter's signatories who said leaders had a moral responsibility to consider emissions from fossil fuels even when they are exported. So will we be punished for exporting our coal overseas, which exports reach $110 billion this financial year. But Plannery says the minister must heed the advice of the country's leading scientists. What about international scientists? Would Dr John R. Christie, a climatologist from Alabama, be a leading scientist? Quote, he says, I've often heard that there's a consensus of thousands of scientists on the global warming issue and that human beings are causing catastrophic change to the climate system? Well, I am one scientist, he said, and there are many who think that is not true." Unquote. Would Dr. Charles Wax be a leading scientist? The former president of the American Association of State Climatologists who said, quote, first off, there isn't a consensus among scientists. Don't let anybody tell you there is. Unquote. Would Stanley B. Goldenberg, a leading scientist? He's a meteorologist at the UN National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, who said, quote, it's a blatant lie put forth in the media that makes it seem there's only a fringe of scientists who don't buy into anthropogenic global warming, unquote. Is William Kinnanmoth, an Australian, a former head of the National Climate Centre, within the Australian Bureau of Meteorology. Would he be a leading scientist? He says, quote, climate science is not settled. Four decades of observations highlight that computer models have exaggerated the influence of anthropogenic emissions of carbon dioxide. The Paris Agreement has been negotiated, he said, from faulty premises, unquote. And then there's the world-acclaimed Professor Richard Lindzen, the retired Professor of Meteorology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, world-renowned, who said, quote, what we will be leaving our grandchildren is not a planet damaged by industrial progress, but a record of unfathomable silliness, as well as a landscape degraded by rusting wind farms and decaying solar panels. And then... This is Michael Schellenberger, who for 20 years was a world-renowned environmental activist. But he wrote a book two years ago, Apocalypse Now, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. In it, he apologised for, quote, the climate scare we have created over the past 30 years. Of climate change, he said, it is not even our most serious environmental problem, unquote. Schellenberg further said, quote, once you realise how badly misinformed we have been, it's hard not to feel duped," unquote. Does that mean if words are to retain their meaning, that we've been lied to? And as a result of those lies, and it's proven by Flannery's record, we are denying Australians what could be the cheapest energy in the world, which means denying economic growth and personal and corporate wealth based on the fact as the former environmental activist Michael Schellenberger has said, once you realise how badly misinformed we have been, it's hard not to feel duped, unquote. This may be our biggest crisis, the cost of alarmism and hysteria over climate change. We have to educate ourselves and then educate our kids before it's too late. Believe me, this also is part of the great reset. Before we go, the Qantas CEO, Alan Joyce. there have been plenty of puff pieces saluting his virtues as a businessman. What validity do they have? The figures would suggest that he may be amongst the worst business leaders in the country. And frankly, there's a lot of competition for that title. So look at the figures. In 2008, Joyce took over as CEO of Qantas. Since then, he's reportedly taken home a salary of $104 million, that's all up over all those years, plus this year's salary, which apparently includes a deferred bonus of $3.7 million. What's he done to warrant such generous compensation? Well, during his time as CEO, Qantas has posted losses of nearly $3 billion. At the same time, Qantas has raked in billions of dollars in subsidies and quote, emergency bailouts, your money. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Qantas received a $2 billion bailout from the Morrison government. Joyce, as CEO, has flogged off assets that Qantas had accumulated, including domestic terminals and large swathes of land at Sydney Airport. He's shown little regard for his employees by outsourcing major divisions of the company to foreign interests, such as baggage handling and critical heavy maintenance. Instead of paying back the taxpayer and restoring Aussie jobs, Qantas is now reportedly buying back its own shares to the tune of $400 million to prop up its share price. Forget about paying tax, because Qantas keeps making losses under the leadership of Alan Joyce. It looks like they won't be paying any tax this year. But to top it off, which irritates Qantas staff and thousands of others, Alan Joyce spends his time meddling in our political system. When it came to the 2019-20 bushfires, Joyce said, quote, The longer we wait to genuinely tackle climate change, the harder it will be. The world is becoming more ambitious in tackling climate change and so must we. Australia's policy progress has been slowed by deeply partisan debates. We've let science lead the way on the pandemic and it's worked. Why should climate change be any different? Unquote. So Alan Joyce is now an expert on climate change and apparently urging that we get rid of any debate. I'm sure Alan Joyce doesn't want the punter to know the truth, that carbon dioxide makes up 0.04% of the atmosphere, 97% of carbon dioxide emissions are naturally emitted, 3% worldwide are the product of human activity, and little old Australia is only responsible for 1.3% of the 3%. You run out of noughts, don't you? On Gay Marriage, Alan Joyce said, it's really about equality. One of the reasons why I love Australia is it's about a fair go, unquote a fair go. The 1,700 baggage handlers Alan Joyce sacked after outsourcing the division to a foreign company surely didn't get a fair go. Now he thinks he's got the right to call for a rewriting of the Australian constitution. On the Indigenous Voice, Joyce said recently that, quote, the enshrined voice is a pathway forward for a more unified and reconciled nation, unquote. I'm not sure Alan Joyce is qualified to talk about a unified and reconciled anything. He outsources Australian jobs. He gobbles up taxpayer money. He supports share buyback schemes designed to prop up Qantas' stock price instead of reinvesting the cash into improving the airline services and protecting Aussie jobs. And he thinks he has the right to call for social, political and constitutional change from his $19 million waterfront mansion in Mosman. Well, my message to this bloke is simple. Stick to your knitting, Alan Joyce. Fix up Qantas and leave the political debate to others, unless you want to give up the million dollar salaries and enter parliament on $217,000 a year, where your political utterances have every chance of being swiftly dismissed. To use the vernacular, many people are saying to Alan Joyce in the wake of all his utterances, shut up. That's it for me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at eight o'clock. You are watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.